Well, good morning. I invite you to make your way in if you're still outside, and we're going to get started in just a second here. For those of you who may be, may be visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church, and we're just glad that you are here with us this morning. A couple of couple of announcements in your in your bulletin. There's a couple um, one opportunity to serve is that we need people who are building stewards. Right? Basically, you stay kind of lock up the church, make everything sure everything is good to go. Uh, people leave the church and just kind of take care of that. And then also today after the service at 10:15 in the library, if you are if you are working at VBS and you, need, you didn't attend the meeting last week, there's a VBS workers meeting at 10.15 in the library that you need to attend just to kind of know what's all, what's all going on. And with that, I'm going to invite Bob Warner up. He can give us a little announcement about church membership. Good morning. As Pastor Tim said, my name is Bob Warner, and I have the honor of serving on the nominating committee along with my wife, Melissa, Tyler Kirby, um, Sheena Welch, and um, Julie and Glenn Stoffer. And it was last week that Glenn shared a little bit about the importance of being a member of the Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. Glenn spoke about responsibility and commitment to your local church. From the standpoint of the nominating committee, membership is vital because certain positions of service require membership. So to be fully able to serve in this church, membership is required. I want to share with you two Bible verses that also speak to membership. The first is Romans 12:4 through 8, which reads, Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body. And each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do so cheerfully. And from 1 Corinthians 12:27, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. As you hear from God's word, being a member of this local church is biblical. My wife, Melissa, and I became members shortly after arrived in Three Lakes 20 years ago. I've always felt being a member showed my full commitment to God and his local body of believers. As Glenn stated last week, there will be a new members class Saturday morning, August 18th. If you're interested, call Lori at the church office to reserve your spot. 
If August 18th date does not work for you, give Lori your name and another class will be scheduled. Now, the day after I was asked to make a membership announcement, I saw this ad. So this is not a plug for ARP. Now, Melissa will tell you I'm not very sensitive to God's little nudges, but even I got the timing of this one. So if you're not convinced that church membership is for you after Glenn, myself, and the Bible, perhaps AARP will convince you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Bob. And you know, we're just glad you're here to worship with us this morning as we come to God and we can sing His praises. So I'm going to turn it over to the worship team now. Good morning, everybody. We're so glad you're here to worship with us, whether you're here in person or online watching later or this morning. Um, we've got a couple new faces up here. Um, I'm Cami Stewart, and these are my sisters. We've got Malia and Macy up here this morning. Um, so I'm excited to have my family here to worship with us. So would you stand as we begin?
You may be seated. My name's Ian. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're super excited for you to be with us. If you are new or visiting, um, there is a little sheet in the chair in front of you. We'd love for you to fill that out and just um, put it into the offering boxes that are on the back just so we can get to know you a little bit. You also, if you have prayer requests, you can put those in there too. Um, if you want to give, you can give in the boxes at the back. If you are new or a guest, um, we would like this service to be a gift to you. So we're not, we're not asking for your money. Um, we just ex- are excited that you're here. Would you uh, pray with me, please? Dear Father, we thank you for this day that we get to gather together, Lord. And as Bob read, we are, we are the body, Lord. And we thank you that we are not, um, that we all have a different role, we all have a different, different strengths and weaknesses that, that you have um, given us, Lord. I ask that you would help us to um, just take those gifts and use them for you, Lord. Help us to um, fellowship well with each other. Help us to worship well today as we um, sing your praises and listen to God's word. Be with Pastor Tim as he um, brings your word, Lord. We uh, sometimes look around our country and world and we see lots of chaos and pain and hardship. And sometimes it's hard to hard to understand that there is an all-powerful God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-good, Lord. But remind us that you are here, that you are the answer that this world needs, that through the chaos you are uh, working for your purposes, Lord. We love you, Father God, and ask your blessing on this day. Amen. One of my favorite verses is out of Hebrews. I believe it's 10.23. Let us hold firmly to the hope we have confessed because we can trust God to do what he promised. Um, And this this has been a really powerful... um, Yeah, just a really powerful verse in my life. Um, And I just... I, I love that he, he never leaves us. Um, and so I just would like us to dwell on that fact as we continue on worship this morning, that our God is faithful on top of everything else, that he is um, powerful and loving. Um, on top of that, he's never going to leave us. And I just take such comfort in that. So would you stand as we continue in worship this morning?
Father, we, we pray to you, we thank you for your great power that not only raised Jesus from the dead, but also transforms us, transfers us from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life, and raises us up, raises us up to new life as well. We praise you for the work you've done each of our lives to transform us, to make us a new creation. Help us to live in light of that truth. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was a kid, there were a couple years where my favorite TV show was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, which I know you're probably shocked that as an eight-year-old I could have such refined tastes, but I did. It was, it was great. And so if you don't, you're not familiar, which you should be, but if you're not familiar, right, this is this group of like teenagers who like, they, could, they could transform, they could change into these super-powered ninjas. And they were called Power Rangers. And they used these devices called Transformers to make that happen. And so they would, they would fight bad guys, right, at these Power Rangers. Right? But if the, if the danger got too great, they had another move they could go to, right? They could summon these things called Dinosaurs, like, which are these like, great giant dinosaur-shaped robots that they could use to fight bad guys. But then sometimes things got really bad, and they could take those dinosaurs, and they could transform them into this thing called a megazord, which looks like this. Like, I mean, if that's not awesome, I don't know what is. Right? <laughs> like, like, looking back on that show, like it's, it's a little embarrassing how much I enjoyed it. Like, it's, like one of the things that was so bad about it is like every episode basically followed the same arc, right? So there's this evil mastermind. Her name was Rita Repulsa. And she was like stationed out in space somewhere, like maybe on the moon, I can't remember. But she was like out in space. But she like had this way to like send bad guys to Earth. So these bad guys would come and they would fight the Power Rangers for a few dramatic moments. But then it was clear that the Power Rangers were getting the upper hand. But then Rita had this thing she could do. She could like stick a staff in the ground and it like superpowered the bad guy and like made him made the bad guy into a giant, like it quadrupled in size. And, and so then the Power Rangers like, oh what do we do? And so they would summon the dinosaurs and transform into the Megazord and then the supersized bad guy and the Megazord would fight for a while. And it would seem pretty evenly matched for a few minutes. But then the the Power Rangers and this Megazord would summon this like sword from somewhere, I don't know where, and like it had this move that was like seemingly unstoppable and like all powerful. It could just like do the thing with the sword and it would kill the bad guy every time. Like every episode ended with the bad guy dying with this sword move. It's like I remember even as an eight year old being like, Why do we go through all the pretense, right? Like, why didn't Rita Repulsa just send the supersized bad guy right away? And why didn't the Power Rangers just go straight Megazord right off the bat and just stomp the little bad guy first? Like it would have been so much easier. But they didn't. But so, those were all kind of problems of the show. But even maybe in the biggest problem is that before any of that, like, Rita Repulsa's first move was always to send these things called putties. And they were called putties because they were like 
made out of clay and then sent to earth and then whatever, right? But they were super weak. And like, so they would just send like hordes of them at the Power Rangers. Right? And so they, it's like a power in numbers strategy, right? But it never worked because the Power Rangers are just so much more powerful than these, these putties. And so they would just wipe them out. And I just always wonder, like, why did Rita Repulsa send these putties in the first place? Right? It just, it seems so pointless. Like, they had, they had no chance. Right? Now, at this point, you might be wondering, like, why is he telling this story? Like, like, I didn't come to church to hear about bad 90s children's programming. Right? But here's why. Like, for one thing, like, this, like, idea for insertion came to my head. Like, had a little seed, but, like, I Googled something about Power Rangers to, like, make sure I had my details straight. Like, and I went, like, deep down a Power Ranger-shaped rabbit hole. And so, like, I needed to make that time worth it, so I needed to tell this story. (laughs) But the second reason is, I think there's a lesson in those putties, right? And that is, like, in a battle, it doesn't matter how many members one side has, if the other side is vastly stronger. Like the putties, it was often something like hundreds of putties against five Power Rangers, and the Power Rangers had no problem with them. Right? In a battle, it doesn't matter how many members one side has if the other side is substantially stronger. And we see a picture of that in, in Luke chapter 8 this morning. In this passage, in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is going to face a legion of demons all by himself. And he's going to come out on top. There are going to be many demons against one Jesus, but because Jesus is the almighty God of the universe, he's going to win rather easily, frankly. Right? At the last week, we looked at the story of Jesus calming the storm by the power of his voice. Right? And this week, we have Jesus casting out demons. And next week, right, we'll look at a story of Jesus having authority over sickness and death. Right? And like Luke tells all these stories to show us that like, Jesus has authority over the natural, right, over storms. He has authority over the supernatural, like over demons. And he has authority over, like, sickness and death. Right? And so, like, Luke painted this picture to show us that Jesus has authority over everything. He is all-powerful, almighty. He has great authority. And so then the question for us to consider in a light of that is, like, how are you going to respond to that authority, how will you respond to Jesus' authority? And so in this passage, we're going to see two, two possible ways that you can respond. And my hope is that by the end of the sermon, like one of those choices will seem vastly superior to the other. So let's, let's start by reading the passage together. We're in Luke chapter 8. We're going to look at verses 26 through 39. You can either open it in your Bible or the verses will be on the screen. Remember, this is right after Jesus calmed the storm, part of the same boat trip, right? But verse 26, they sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, 
And though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demons into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him. And they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs and give, and he gave them permission. When the demon came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this to the, in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. And so these, these verses paint a picture of Jesus' authority. So like, first, just look back at verses 26 and 27. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he met a demon-possessed man from the town. And for a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. So if we're going to understand Jesus' authority, like we first have to understand the situation that Jesus is stepping into here. And that's where Luke starts this story. He tells us about the man's condition. So remember, like this happened immediately after Jesus calmed the storm. So like, I don't know if you ever had a day where it just feels like all the crazy happens like, in one day. Right? Like, so maybe like your alarm doesn't go off, so you're running behind, and then you like you spill your breakfast on yourself, and then like you go out to your car and you're running late, but your car won't start. So you have to go like borrow your neighbor's car and you're late for work. And so you like you finally like borrowing your car, get to work, you're a little bit late, but you like settle in, you're like, all right, got through all that, now I can just kind of settle in and have a normal day at work. But then like an hour later, the school nurse calls, one of your kids is sick, you have to like go pick them up, and you go pick them up, and then as you're driving home in your neighbor's borrowed car, like your kid throws up in the back seat. Like, just on, on, like all the crazy happens in this one day, it just all happens together. Like maybe that's a bit of an extreme example, like, but we've all had days like that. Right? Like, like just in the, everything that weird that could happen, happens. Right? Like, and that's this day for the disciples. And so just think about this day, right? They get on the boat, you're going to have a nice leisurely boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. Right? But all of a sudden, like the biggest storm any of them have ever seen whips up. And that's weird. And then Jesus, who's like sleeping through the storm, wakes up and he just speaks, and the storm stops. That's super weird. So then they get to the other side of the lake, and they're like, all right, we experienced that. That was weird. I don't know what's going on, but like, we're here now. Hopefully we just have a nice normal rest of our day. 
So they like step out of the boat, shooting for that nice normal day, and like the first thing that happens, right, they come across a demon-possessed naked guy walking around through the tombs. Like, that's not normal. It's not going to get more normal. Like, so much for that nice, boring day. So this man they encounter, he's a demon-possessed, he's in truly rough shape. Like, like he is, he's not wearing clothes. He's not living in a house. He's living in tombs. He's isolated from the rest of society. Like, he's being chained up, but they can't chain him. He's too strong, so he's just kind of living off by himself. Basic human needs for things like shelter and clothing and human connection are not being met for this man. He is in rough shape. And it's all because he's demon-possessed. He's possessed by, in fact, many demons, by a legion of demons. Like, and that leads us into a bit of a tricky discussion about, like, demons in general. Right? Like, and the reason it's tricky is because, like, there's often two ways you tend to talk about demons. Right? Either we entirely downplay them and just, like, act that they don't exist, or right, we see a demon behind every bush. Like, everything, everything bad that happens must be the work of a demon. Like, we want to say, like, the devil made me do it to every sin we commit. And so, like, there needs to be a balance. On the one hand, we need to acknowledge, the Bible teaches demons are a real thing. They exist. That there is, like, this spiritual realm where real spiritual warfare is being waged. And, like, much of our Western culture, that just sounds crazy, right? And maybe to some of you watching or sitting here, like, even hearing me say that, you're like, you don't really believe that, do you? Like, like our understanding of the world has come so far. Like, demons are just these things these ancient people made up right, to make sense of the world. Like, and if you're here, that's how you think, like, I get it. Like, frankly, like, sometimes I feel like it's crazy. But... Like, my strong conviction, right, and I think the strong conviction of many of us here is, like, the Bible is God's revealed truth. And the Bible treats Satan and demons, but they are just as real as God and Jesus and angels. So if you're going to believe what the Bible says about one of those things, then you have to believe what the Bible says about the other. And so we, we can't look at the Bible and just reject demons. On the other hand, we need to be careful not to attribute to demons too much credit, too much power. Often it's our own sinfulness, our own brokenness, and the brokenness of the world that causes the bad things that happen. And like, it's not always a demon's fault. It's just our sinfulness, our brokenness is often the cause for our problems. And we could spend hours looking at all the places demons show up in the Bible and trying to develop a cohesive theology of what demons are. But that's not really the point of this passage. The point of this passage is to show that Jesus has authority over the demons. And to encourage us, right, that if Jesus can help this man, who's in rough shape, who's in like the worst imaginable state, right, then he can help us too. Like Luke's like having this argument from like from the greater to the lesser. 
Because, well, you may not be possessed by a legion of demons like this man was. Our sin, our own sinfulness, produces some of the same consequences in us, just on a lesser scale. Just that this man was isolated and enslaved by this demon possession. Our, our own sinfulness causes us to act in ways that enslave us and isolate us from other people. We can feel trapped in our sin. We can feel hopeless. Like you can feel like you're caught in a situation that there's no coming back from. And the point of this passage is not to say, like, look, this is how demons operate. It's not all about demons, right? The point of the passage is that like, no one is beyond hope. Like, this man is in the worst state imaginable. Like, he is demon-possessed. He's living in tombs. He is naked. He is uncontrollable. People are fleeing from him. Like, there can't be a worse state to be in. And yet, Jesus is able to save him. Like, Jesus has the authority to cast out these demons and to forgive his sins and to save this man. And if Jesus had the power to do that for this man... His power is surely enough to help you through whatever you're going through. Like, I don't know where you're at. Emotionally, spiritually, we all come in at different places feeling different things. But no matter, no matter what you're going through this morning, no matter what predicament you maybe find yourself in, no matter how hopeless you may be feeling this morning, you aren't worse off than this man in this passage. And Jesus' authority and power was enough to save him. And if it was enough for him, then it is enough for you too. No matter your situation. No situation is hopeless in this life. So whatever you're going through this morning, there is hope in Jesus. There is there is one situation that is hopeless. It's not in this life, but it's to come to the end of this life having finally and totally and ultimately rejected Jesus. That's what the demons have done. Look at verses 28 through 31 with me. It says this, when he, that is, the demons, saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his lungs, of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Legion, he replied. Because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. So a couple things to notice here. So the demons give their name as legion. Like a legion is like a, a large unit in, a, in the Roman army made up of thousands of soldiers. Like I don't think like by giving the name legion, like Luke trying to tell us, like there's the exact number of demons in this man that there is soldiers in a Roman unit, but the idea is that there's a lot of demons in this man. Like, he is so possessed, he's, like, empowered by these demons to do, like, superhuman things. Like, he's breaking metal chains and running away from guards who are presumably armed and trying to restrain him, and he is unstoppable. But now this group, this legion of demons, comes 
face to face with Jesus. And their power, the power of the demons, which had once seemed so great, so mighty, so powerful, suddenly vanishes. They are powerless in the face of Jesus' authority. And what I find so fascinating here, right, that, the, that the demons clearly understand who Jesus is and what authority he has. Right? At this point in Luke, they, they probably understand who Jesus is better than anyone. But they call Jesus Son of the Most High God, which is like the highest, most Christological, most accurate description of Jesus we find in Luke anywhere. Like, as we said, like, Luke, throughout this whole book, is kind of revealing slowly more and more to his readers all about who Jesus is. Right? And the disciples are learning more and more, bit by bit, about who Jesus is. But the demons already know. They are fully aware of who Jesus is. And because they know who Jesus is, they understand his authority and the power that he has. They know that he has absolute power to command them to do anything he wants. This legion of demons that was so powerful that it was causing a man to break chains, they know they're utterly powerless in the face of Jesus' power. Twice in the passage, we're told that they beg Jesus not to torture them and to send them into the abyss. They are, they're consigned to begging. They are, they are putties facing power rangers. They are, they are hopeless. They are outgunned. Even though they are far greater in number, they know there is no hope in this battle. Jesus' power and authority are a great source of hope for those of us who have trusted in him. But, but the demons are also a warning for those of us who like, haven't submitted to Jesus. Right? These demons, they, they know who Jesus is. Right? Yet because they made their final, ultimate decision to reject him, there is no hope for them. Right? And there is, there is coming a day right, when everyone will see clearly that like, Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. A day when, as Paul says, and as we sang this morning, like that every knee will bow to Jesus. The only question is, are you going to be one who bends the knee willingly and joyfully? Or you, will you be like these demons right, who confess Jesus, who bend the knee, but only out of dread? Like on that day, like the day that's coming when we will all bend the knee to Jesus, like if you've rejected him in this life, it will be too late. On that day, there will be no chance to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. But that day is not here yet. We all have the choice now, whether to bend the knee willingly, joyfully in this life, or to do it begrudgingly in the next life. And like the invitation of the passage is, like, bend the knee now. Not because Jesus is some tyrant who demands we bend the knee, but because by bending the knee, he can do for us what he did for this man. He can forgive our sins. He can transform us. Like today, we had the opportunity to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God who came to earth and died on the cross for our sins. We have the chance to be forgiven so that when that day does come, like we are among people who bend the knee willingly, joyfully, 
knowing that we're going to spend eternity with Him, worshiping Him. And ultimately, ultimately, Jesus has the authority to determine the eternal fate of every creature He has created. And we see that in the next couple of verses. Verses 32 and 33. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs. He gave them permission. When the demon came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. So Jesus gives, Jesus uses his authority to give the pigs permission to enter, the demon permission to enter in to these pigs. Now this section can be a little challenging to like wrap our minds around. At least for me, it prompts two big questions. One, like, why did, the, why did Jesus give the demons what they wanted? Why would he do that? And then two, like, why would Jesus allow the demons to destroy these pigs? And to answer those questions, I think it's helpful to think about like, another time in the Bible when a demonic force asked God for permission to destroy someone's property. And that place is the book of Job. If you're not, not familiar, like in that book, Satan himself like, approaches God and offers permission to afflict Job with the loss of money and family and possessions and health. And God gives Satan permission to do it. And that, that loss of money and family possessions right, becomes a test for Job. And Job faces the choice. Right? He can love God and trust Him, even though all these bad things are happening. Or he can love his possessions and his family and his wealth more, and he can curse God for taking those things away from him. And I think the same thing's happening here. Jesus shows up, and he does this undeniable miracle in the life of this man. He heals and restores this member of this community. And like, but for the people in the community, it, it costs them some pigs. Like, and now they're faced with a choice. They can look at what Jesus did for this man, and they can be amazed by how this man's life has been transformed. And they can choose to love God and follow Jesus because of what he did. Or they can choose to love their money and their wealth and their possessions more they can value their wealth more than the life of a community member and therefore reject God and be mad at God for destroying a few pigs. That kind of cost them a little bit of money. And we see how they respond in verses 34 through 37. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, they ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. Then all the people of the region, of the Gerasenes, asked Jesus to leave them, because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. And like, to me, like those, those last two verses are just mind-boggling. Right? Verse 36. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured. So what would they do? 
verse 37, that all people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got in the boat and left. What? Like, Jesus transforms this man, like, undeniably, from this uncontainable, demon-possessed, naked maniac into someone who's calmly sitting, fully clothed, in his right mind, at Jesus' feet. And the response is, uh, no thanks. Like, we don't want any of that around here. We don't want people getting better. We don't want demons cast out. We don't want to help the helpless and the less fortunate. Not if it means risking our own material wealth. Not if it might cost us something. Like, it's not worth it to us. The people chose their money and their wealth and their possessions. They chose the things of this world over submitting to Jesus. Like, they they saw his power firsthand. They knew what he was capable of. And yet they rejected him. Because he infringed on their ability to live selfishly. And it, like, it seems to make no sense on the surface. But then I wonder, do I do the same thing sometimes? Like, like I've, I've seen Jesus' transforming power in, in my life and in the lives of others. Like, I've seen what Jesus can do. I know what he's capable of. And I know that he calls us to sacrificially love others and to give generously and to not store up treasures on earth and to see people as more valuable than money and wealth and stuff. And yet, I fail all the time to live up to that. I constantly care more about my stuff than what Jesus called me to do with my stuff. I'm more concerned about my pig being thrown into the ocean than I am about following Jesus. And I I study the passage this week. One of the things I've been convicted of is this need to respond to Jesus' power less like the people and more like the man who was healed. Let's look at how the man responded. Verses 38 and 39. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. At this man, who had experienced this healing, transforming authority of Jesus, like, he wants nothing more than to join Jesus' band of disciples and to follow him, which seems like a good thing to desire. But Jesus says, no. I have a, I have a different calling for you. And he calls Amanda, return home and tell how much God has done for you. And he obeys. Right? He, he goes and he tells the town like, how much Jesus had done for him. And the, the quick side note here, right? that Jesus tells the man, like, go and tell how much God has done for you. And then Luke says, the man went and told how much Jesus had done for him. Right? And the man was not being disobedient. Like, he wasn't like, oh, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to say it was God, I'm going to say it was Jesus. Right? He's not being disobedient. Right? Because what, what Jesus did for him and what God did for him are one and the same thing. Because God is, or Jesus is God incarnate. Right? So this is just another little piece of the puzzle that 
Luke is putting together to show us who Jesus is, that he is truly, fully God. What's really important here is like what Jesus called the man to do, which is to tell other people how much God had done for him. And that's the call really for, for all of us as, as Christians. Right? We are called to tell what God has done for us. And for some of us, a few of us, that may mean going overseas or to hard-to-reach places as missionaries. But for most of us, like it was for this man, it means going to our homes, going to our towns, going to our communities and to our workplaces and to tell about what God has done for us. Like sometimes we talk about evangelism and things like that and like these really daunting terms. Like we have this picture, as I do, like of, of evangelism as either like knocking on some stranger's door, walking up to somebody in the street and like confronting them about Jesus and their need to repent and and then they feel this pressure to have all the right things to say and have all the answers to all the hard questions. And because of that pressure, because of the daunting way we think about evangelism, like many of us fail to do it. And I'm, I'm exhibit A of that. Like It's daunting. But like, what if we rethought what evangelism means a little bit? Like what if instead of confrontational conversations and feeling all this pressure. Like we, we look for opportunities with, with friends and with neighbors and with co-workers to tell them about how God has worked in our life. To tell them how God has transformed and changed us. If you've trusted in Jesus, you have a story about how God has transformed you in one way or another. Like it may not be as dramatic as this man's but your life has been transformed. Your sins have been forgiven. You've been adopted into God's family. You have been set free from sin. You have been transferred from death to life. You've been, you've been given a new heart. You've been made a new creation. And the call of this passage is to tell people about it. Like Share the stories of how God has worked in your life. Not with an agenda. Not with an attitude that says, like, Look, now that I share this with you, you better believe these same things. But just share what God has done. Simply as a way to honor God, what He has done in your life. And then as an invitation for people to consider like, that they may be in need of the same kind of transforming power in their life. Just share what God has done. It doesn't have to be daunting. It doesn't have to be challenging. Just share what God has done for you. Let's pray. Father, as we think about what you did for this demon-possessed man, I am thankful for the way there are millions upon millions of similar stories and each life of someone you have saved over the course of history, how you have transformed people from sinners without hope into your sons and daughters who will spend eternity with you. And just as you, you called this man out 
of tombs and sent him back into the world of the living. You call us from the tomb of death and sin into a life of living in your kingdom. God, would we find joy? Would we find delight in sharing freely what you have done for us? But are we not, we would not be ashamed when we not hide the work you have done in our lives? But would we, like this man, would we freely tell our, our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our communities what God has done for us? Would you, would you be glorified as we praise you out loud to a watching world for, you, for what you have done for us? We thank you that you did not leave us in our sinful, hopeless state, but that you sent Jesus to live the life that we could not live and die the death we could not die so that that believing in Him, our sins can be forgiven. We can have eternal hope with You and Your kingdom. God, will we never take that lightly? And would it move us and motivate us to go and to share that hope with others? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By way of a benediction. Hear these words from the book of Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and have made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. You are dismissed.